Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by LGC and FutureGov. Join us each month as we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button to have the latest episode delivered to your device each month and share this podcast with your colleagues. You can do so by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to the Local Authority. This is the second episode of the new podcast from Local Government Chronicle and FutureGov. I'm Nick Golding, the LGC editor. Each month we're bringing together some of the biggest names in and around local government to discuss some of the biggest issues facing local government. The theme of the Local Authority is one of change, how councils can change their area and themselves for the better. Covid, of course, has led to dramatic change. Barely 15 months ago, work was something done in an office and the public meeting was the only forum for local democracy. Covid has led to so much pain, but it has also been a transformer. So what is the new normal for local places and local governments and how can councils shape the new normal? On our panel today, we have Jen Byrne, who's the Deputy Chief Executive of FutureGov. We have Ian Thomas, the Chief Executive of Kingston-upon-Thames Council. And we've got Carolyn Wilkins, the Chief Executive of Oldham Council. Ian, can I turn to you to start with, please? What, what is the current normal in Kingston? And what are the good and the bad things that you're experiencing there? Um, it's, a, it's a good question, Nick. I think um, currently, like many places, people are working from home and working remotely. We are strictly adhering to the uh, government uh, roadmap for lifting of restrictions. Um, and that's been the case throughout the throughout the pandemic. We've already said to our staff, and we said this two months ago, that we didn't expect people to be returning to workplaces before September. So people in Kingston are aware that we are continuing with the current arrangements until September. And we know through our staff surveys that most of our staff are looking forward to a blended approach of sometime in the office, one or two days a week, with the remainder continuing to work remotely without that having an impact on performance or quality. You talked about the good things, uh, so lots of innovation. Today we're, we're all meeting from different parts of the country and of course people have mobilised themselves really quickly to achieve that. And you mentioned the bad things. I think it's really important to note that Working remotely does not suit everyone, and as uh, as human beings, we thrive on interaction and social interaction. And I know a number of people in my organisation who are really missing working together with their teams in a physical location, in a, in a physical space, so that's been quite hard. Um, Jen, I'll turn to you next. Um, Ian's giving us a strong picture of what the situation is for his, his staff. Is, is that the sort of picture that we're seeing around the country? Yeah, I think it is. I think I think there's a couple of things in this around the degree to which local place, local business might be looking to local authorities as, and taking their cue to, you know, what does a return to the workplace look like? How intense is that? I mean, we're not, 
I think all the organizations we're working with are not assuming that people will return five days a week and it will be a lot along the lines of, you know, as Ian's described, where there's a sort of blended model. I think the blended hybrid model is actually something that poses much more of a challenge than everybody working fully remote or fully back in the office. You know, I I was in the office yesterday, we had a call with about eight people on it. And actually, it required a particular discipline to participate on a video call where you were in a room with three people, but you had another, you know, four or five who were working remotely. And you had to have particular kind of etiquette, I guess, around, you know, using the using the hand up facility in order that you created an equivalence of an experience for um, for everybody involved. I think, you know, that will take some practice. I think the thing that, you know, we're seeing probably is just the sheer level of exhaustion across organizations, across the sector. I think that remote working has invariably led to an increase in productivity, although I couldn't, I, I can't measure that. It's it's sort of, it's anecdotal. But I think what we've lost is the time we used to have to decompress between meetings because you walked to another part of the building, you got into the lift, you could reflect in part around what you'd heard before you entered the next meeting room. Actually, what that is now is you're closing one tab and opening another. And I'm not sure where we're creating the space for that period, that that kind of process of reflection, sense-making and thinking. And I think that's taking its toll on people in terms of just emotional resilience and exhaustion across the piece. And Carolyn, would that be a fair picture of what the situation is in Oldham? Well, I I suppose, yes, yes, I'd say. But to add to it as well, I think um, because we have such a broad range of services that we deliver, We've actually had such a, a, a differential approach actually across our workforces. I mean, some of our workforce have to be physically present to do the jobs that they do. And that's been true throughout the pandemic. Some it is possible to do a, a more blended approach or actually needs to be more of a blended approach. So particularly, say, social work teams can do some of the work remotely, but again, need to be physically present. And then some can be entirely remote but don't necessarily want to be. So I think we're working through all of, of what does, does that mean. I think the other challenge then is is the, the amount of capacity that's been taken up through public services, local government particularly, supporting um, the pandemic. I mean, Jen just mentioned about, you know, the amount of support to businesses, schools, et cetera, you know, right across the system to communities, but also trying to deliver those core services and having to sort of manage that at different phases of the pandemic when you might be opening services up more but then having to close them down and that's been particularly challenging in places like Oldham where we've never really seen the complete drop off we've been we've been early in most of the waves if not directly in Oldham at least in greater manchester so i think you know that the balance of that and the the growing backlog on services that um, that we're seeing you know and and the change in demand i think you know mental health has also already been mentioned for our workforce but for our communities you know, support to schools, etc. So I think it's it's a constantly changing arena that we're working in as well, in a way that perhaps we haven't experienced over such a lengthy period. Usually when we're in a kind of emergency planning situation, there is an end to it. Whereas I think for us, we're seeing a very long tail to this actually for our communities and therefore necessarily for our workforces. And how many days a week would you expect your previously office-based staff to be in, in the office, Carolyn? So I think we're we're trying to work it through in terms of what makes sense for the purpose of the business rather than it just being, you know, the days needed. So where do you particularly get the value uh, and the benefit from being perhaps face to face? 
recognising even that then needs to be within COVID constraints. The other uh, point that we've been making to workforces is that just because you can be in actually puts additional pressure on the physical infrastructure and the COVID restrictions. So it might be that you could be there, but you being there then compromises people that have to be there. So again, it's the balance for us about, um, so we've been doing an awful lot of work about the, the nature of the business, but also support for individuals, some people because of family circumstances, domestic circumstances, their own health and well-being, actually strongly need to be physically present, even if the nature of the job does and so we're working through some of that challenge as well i want to of course this is not just an issue for council staff it's for the whole community it's for the entire local area but i want to ask well we're talking about council staff here i mean have there been differences between you know, people of different different seniorities different ages in in terms of how well they've responded to um working from home and their enthusiasm about the, the remote way of doing things. Yes, I, I I think there are differences. I wanted to pick up on what Jen said about productivity and point towards some research that CIPD has undertaken. Two thousand employees across seven organisations in different sectors, and they found through that survey that was conducted in April of this year that. Uh, two-thirds of employers were saying that productivity had either stayed the same or improved. You know, uh, uh, Within that, a third had improved. Um, so I wanted to, to, to share that, that information because in conversations with our elected members, when we've talked about surveys with staff, quite rightly, elected members asked the question about, well, what, what's, it, what's it mean for services and the quality of services and what's it mean for our residents and stakeholders? So I think when we talk about this, we need to think about this in the context of continuing and improved performance going forwards. In terms of seniority, we've been really clear, and I think that Carolyn's touched on this, that there are going to be some instances where face-to-face services have remained necessary. We will not leave someone who's destitute, who needs a face-to-face appointment uh, without having that appointment. As a senior leadership team, we, we we have been leading the way and leading by example and not coming into the office, uh, generally speaking, not saying we've not, but generally speaking. And for those roles such as social care, in some instances, it's been necessary to, to, to come in and deal with people face to face, as it has for some of our other services, like, you know, refuse collection, as an example. Uh, so... It's about what Carolyn said. It's about proportionality. You know, what's proportionate? What's a proportionate response? How do we get that balance between ensuring that we respond in accordance with the pandemic and the restrictions and maintain a good level of service? And I've been bowled over by my team's resilience and elected members' uh, appetite for change. And, uh, you know, I'd I'd like to thank them for that. Uh, A heartfelt thanks for that because it's been, um, for all of us, very, very difficult. Ian was mentioning their productivity, and I came to ask you that, about that, Jen, and you know, it, it, how much evidence is there about productivity in the hybrid working environments? And you know, it, are there any sort of rules of thumb about this? Is, is there any blankets, blanket rules? 
I actually think cause I, there's a there's a set of nuanced points I think in this question of productivity, and and actually I think the question of pro productivity or the question of like where does where is the value of this? And I think one of the things that we found both as an organisation, but in all our kind of connection to local place through this last 15, 16 months, is something which has proven the impact and power of the relational over the transactional. And what is the, the important quality in that is, or qualities, I guess, are both trust and relationships. So they are about the connectivity with, with, with people, with place, they're based on relationships that are formed. So actually, as we see time being compressed and apparently productivity going up, what I what I wouldn't want to see is us losing the our sense of value for for, as I said earlier, kind of sense making, but actually the moments where we connected. You know, we've done a set of surveys into our organization around sort of, you know, what 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 people want in terms of, you know, re returning to a workplace or, or kind of what does hybrid look like going forward. And actually we see in that a kind of a, a set of contradictions in that people want to connect, they want the connectedness of being physically proximate to people, but are also maybe averse to being you know, commuting in a packed train. And so actually it requires an unpacking to say, like, what is the bit of connectedness that we can recreate or find space for elsewhere, whilst also making sure that our teams are safe? But I think if you, if you bring that back, you know, to what does, what does this quality of relational over transactional look like? You know, across the piece, what we've seen, and you're seeing it now in terms of specifications that are coming out where councils are looking for support from organisations, is much more around this reflect, reflection back to what did we expose during that immediate response around our ability to operate in spite of organisational boundaries? Because co collections of people and teams had a real clarity of purpose. They had a real understanding of what outcome they were seeking to achieve. And that meant that you acted instantly in the effort to make sure that people had hot food, to make sure, sure that somebody had their prescription collected. That's led, I think, to an aspiration for more collaborative effort, cross-sector you know, cr cross collaborative effort. What that started to do is create some appetite, I think, around systems, systems approaches to this, recognising that what we're dealing with actually has an implied complexity to it. Um, and that requires us to work across discipline um, but but that is, you know, we're talking. We've been talking, I suppose, now around kind of what this looks like at an organisational level. And I think we need to extend that out to, to to consider what does this look like at a place level where the actors cross multiple different organisations and may not have the the status of being an organisation because actually they are, you know, they're voluntary in community sector. They may be sort of low, you know, uh, less formal uh, organisations, teams, and communities. That's really interesting. I might take that with you, Carolyn, as well, because I visited you in Oldham barely more than a year ago, and a lot changed in that time. But at, at the time, we discussed how in Greater Manchester, you know, unparalleled in local government terms, blurring of boundaries between different organisations, including councils and the NHS. How has that moved on amid COVID? And how, how has that moved on working alongside the local population? 
So, I mean, I, I, yeah, to build on, on what Jen was just saying, I mean, the importance of relational and social connectedness. So the, the kind of ethos of the leadership development work in Greater Manchester was always about building a community of leaders. And that was um, across place, organisation and systems so that we weren't privileging one or the other. We we're recognising actually that you need to flex and bring all your kind of leadership capacity together. And there were so many times over the last kind of 18 months where, you know, incredibly grateful that we've done that kind of investment and built those kind of relationships and connections. So, for example, in Oldham back in March last year, when we were standing up the SCG, it was just automatically a place-based um, SCG, you know, the voluntary community sector, housing, everybody was around the table because everybody had a role to play. And I think it, and that's not new, is it? But I think the way that we worked was new. And I, I think that the single purpose, you know, we, we had a very clear single purpose, whether we were a place, a system or an organisation, we were all working towards the same thing. And you can see the pullback already, I think, from different parts of the system, whether that's, the, you know, the NHS with waiting lists, etc., or, you know, people wanting to stand back th- things that, that have been stood down during kind of COVID, beginning to pull that apart. I think the other thing is we couldn't leave disagreement on the table even for 24 hours because we had to find a resolution or a way through it. So I think people's appetite for risk was greater because the consequences were, you know, really stark, you know, of not doing this. The consequences were right there immediately in front of us. So finding a resolution, having a greater appetite for risk, so it didn't necessarily have to be a formal organisation delivering things. It just had to be the people with the connections that were able to get it done. So, And I just think there's huge lessons for us in how we've all worked in this space, that how do we how do we keep that and not, you know, how do we resist this sort of deep muscle memory pull back to previous ways of working? Ian, uh, let's put that point to you now, please, because... Did you also experience in Southwest London that that sense of everyone working together? And how can we retain that going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I recognise that. And beyond Southwest London, actually, I, you know, think about the the whole London region pulling together to respond to this huge crisis that we had. And uh, don't forget, there was a there was a a national mantra about whatever it takes, and and, and that permission was quite liberating and you know I think that all partners and everyone in communities really pulled together and recognized that this was uber critical and I I felt that we had the the sort of conditions to expedite a a can-do approach and that resulted in people mobilizing to new ways of working really quickly so we, we all worked hard to establish volunteer hubs. We, we all got used to uh, remote meetings. And uh, as I said before, you know, our elected members who have, have always been used to coming in, as, as we were to ha- have council meetings um, in person, really got up to speed quickly with remote meetings and getting the business done, even though we were in the eye of the storm, because there was a real need to respond to the urgency of the crisis whilst juxtaposed continuing to do the day-to-day business as well. But can, can I interject? I mean, is there a danger that when there isn't that urgency of the crisis, I mean, is there a danger that we 
retreats back behind the, the, the into our individual organizational silos? So the answer is yes, and I think that um, Caroline has said as much, and uh, there is that danger, and I think uh, it's incumbent on, on all of us as, as, as leaders to try and push back on that, but it is hard because there's a natural inclination to revert back to type or revert back to what one's used to, and I think we have a responsibility, uh, as I said, to, to push back on that and to um, build on what's worked really well. So as an example, and we've talked about supporting our most vulnerable residents, children in the care system, young people in the care system, our social workers respond to us that they'd be more successful at keeping in touch and engaging with those young people using uh, digital technology and online platforms. And that's an example of something that we must retain going forward because the whole world is changing around us uh, and we need to flex and evolve to respond to that. Um, Jen, you work with many different kinds of organisations. What, what what secrets do you see that they employ to make joint work, shared values, and that, that level of cooperation we've seen to, to be as to be a long-standing thing? The team in East Sussex are doing some fantastically ambitious work around um, socialisation and loneliness. And you know, this is a messy, complex challenge. It it cuts across a multitude of organisational boundaries, priorities and funding layers. But isolation is a social challenge that isn't particularly visible, yet it has you know, profound and lasting impact on people's lives. And East Sussex want to build on the cross-sector relationships and networks that have been forged over the past year, understand the conditions for success and then replicate those. And they're focusing on convening communities, teams, residents, partners to build consensus around a future ambition with, you know, with shared goals, but but also to build the skills and capabilities in those teams to approach this from a systems perspective. And that's a collective effort. It depends on the involvement of informal channels and organisations to, to extend the reach of support, but also to engage the people affected by loneliness and isolation in the design and thinking. And that requires a certain... Humility, you know, recognising that the formal or statutory partners aren't always best positioned to connect with the people most affected. And actually that starts to ask some really interesting questions around governance, scrutiny and the role of councils and other public sector bodies in new models. So, so Ian, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to, to you. Um, we've spoken a lot about the impacts on organisations and the council workforce. What's about your local population? Um, Kingston's obviously a relatively prosperous area um a lot of your residents commute into central london or have, have done um how, how is the new normal going to play out there yeah so i think it's important to say a number of things in response to that um and that is that yes it's an area area of um relative affluence but some of our wards are among the 20 percent most deprived in the country and we have social issues that do not recognise or discriminate by postcode such as domestic abuse and mental health, which uh, afflicts all of us. So um, just to put that into some context, um, Nick, if I may, you're quite right that we have many people that travel into inner London, uh, to the city, uh, Canary Wharf, etc., uh, and 45,000 people travel in daily, and 36,000 come into Kingston the other way. So that's a sort of net 
exodus of sort of 9,000, isn't it? And what we found is that along with everybody else um, and the instruction to stay at home and work remotely, most people have been doing that. The upside to it from a local economic perspective is that people staying home working remotely tend to spend locally too. So we've seen that play out in our uh, footfall in the town centre as as an example. And as restrictions have eased, we've seen a very busy town centre and a very busy uh, riverfront as well, which comes with with other problems, I have to say, when you have large groups of people converging, particularly uh, in a lockdown situation. So, so for, for businesses that are closer to where people live, you know, it could be a relatively rosy future. Well, it's difficult to say over the medium term, but certainly in the immediate term, we've seen a, a boost for local traders as a result of home working. And as I said, people who are at home and, you know, just think about yourself, Nick, and your, your habits and where you've been spending your money over the last, you know, 15 months, um, that's tended to be in supporting uh, local economies. Of course, people's shopping habits have changed over a number of years now when more people are shopping online. But the, the, what we're seeing, going back to the question in Kingston, are local people spending locally and and that, that's something that uh, we've encouraged and can, can i ask you is now a time of optimism for kingston should the people of kingston be relatively upbeat about the future bearing in mind everything that's happened over the past year i think that given that we've seen a number of positive developments so as an example unilever has chosen kingston to be home to its new HQ campus, which will bring 2,000 new jobs to the town centre, just sort of as an example. And we have a huge £800 billion uh, regeneration project for 2,170 homes on the Cambridge Road estate, uh, which will bring jobs uh, and apprenticeships. And all of this will bring investment in the public realm as well. There are reasons to be optimistic. The council, you know, we are looking to rebuild a brand new leisure facility in the town centre also and to uh, reimagine the town centres that we have and high streets that we have so that these are destination places. You know, we are focusing on, focusing on the experience and diversifying the offer so it's not just retail but a range of different uh, attractions that will attract people into our high streets and town centres and keep them there. Brilliant. That's, that's a really interesting example from Kingstonians. Thank, thank you very much. Carolyn, how is the experience of the residents of Oldham? How, how does that differ from that of, of Kingston? The pandemic, of course, has shown up glaring inequalities, of which the, even before the pandemic, there were, there were many in Oldham. Yeah, so, I mean, I think deep structural inequalities that we've, we've known have been there for, for you know for decades uh, and you know some of it particularly things like you know housing housing tenure but also quality and nature of housing has been a significant issue actually hasn't it in people's ability to respond to the to the government's policies it's one thing to sort of self-isolate if you're in a two or three bed semi uh, with plenty of space it's another if you live in a 
multi-generational household, you know, um, where several people are key workers and going out to work every day. So, you know, the, the pandemic's been experienced very differently uh, in different parts of our communities. But that's not just true in Oldham, that's true everywhere, actually. And I think what, what it's also done, as well as accelerate changes in terms of ways of working, you know, driving things online, for example, as my, my role as accountable officer at the clinical commissioning group, you know, working with GPs, getting changes in place that we've been pushing for quite some time, but happened, you know, much quicker once we we got into the uh, the foothills, really, of the pandemic. It's also accelerated changes that were coming anyway to retail. So, you know, the master plan in place in Oldham Town Centre, the fact we've done an awful lot of site assembly, including the, the shopping centre, actually will just, just increases our ability to drive forward. We've been very successful with um, High Street and Town town deal funding so that's really positive but there as I said already there's a deep legacy to COVID for for many of our communities that we're going to need to work with and I think what what COVID showed as well which is true for you know for all of us we need to think much more deeply about which parts of our population our policies don't work for you know so there was a very clear policy objective um, in the early days to protect the the most vulnerable which was the 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 oldest in our communities and that translated through to sort of the the shielding clinically extremely vulnerable and care homes it was later on domiciliary care it was never really uh, addressed multi-generational households so that cohort that population we we didn't really take a population approach to that in a way quickly enough I don't feel and some of the narratives about places like Oldham and about structural inequality and deprivation missed I think the point of just how globally connected Oldham's community is and places like Oldham which meant that you know border international arrivals the policy there had a significant impact on places like Oldham that perhaps the the policy debate was too polarized too siloed so I think there's some structural kind of strategic issues for us going forward in in terms of dealing with it i think there are so, some really so when you say that does that mean a really big focus on the, the, the people like the multi-generational households the the areas of the most entrenched inequality i know you're working that really dramatically but but before the pandemic but it, do, do you have a greater knowledge of how to interact with the, with those groups now so, uh, yeah, I mean, we've done some incredible work that, that you know, the community is stepping forward, engaging. I think that, that, you know, the pan system working has just been astonishing in the way that, you know, Ian said, and the role of elected members in that has been really crucial as community networkers, community leaders, being able to kind of connect through and a real richness in approach. And I think there's some really valuable lessons for us as we build ICSs, for example, about taking that learning and that way of working to make sure that the policy objective is clear, but we don't get too bogged down in in one size fits all policy responses to delivering those objectives, that it is much, much more tailored to our understanding. I mean, we've done an awful lot of work in Oldham with Thriving Communities um, Index, trying to have uh, you know, rather than thinking about provider and commissioner split, how do we start with insight and understanding, connecting that through into kind of co-design and then testing through into delivery, but a much closer kind of intimate feedback loops through all of that. And we and and again back to my point about appetite for risk. I mean, we use that approach on vaccination really early in Oldham, and I think you know, touching wood, whilst our numbers have have gone up. 
actually we hadn't seen the surge that other parts of Greater Manchester have done because we've got great engagement, particularly with the Bangladeshi Pakistani heritage community on vaccination, but also, you know, just working with us to, to respond to that. And we've been doing that throughout. So, yeah, but I think there's some such important lessons for us about how we work going going forward. Jen, can I ask you, I mean, how do you think council should be seizing the new normal to make sure that it, everything we've learned works in favour of their local population rather than against it? in as much as it's possible. Uh, do you know, I really like the point you just made, Caroline, around kind of learning, actually. And, and you also mentioned earlier the COVID, you know, this had, that there will be and there is a long tail to this experience. And I think we probably started this with a, an idea of something that was much more sort of linear chapters of, you know, response, recover, rebuild, with some idea of sort of finality to it. And actually, I think... What's becoming evident is that we really need something that's much more around cyclical models, you know, regenerative models, that this is probably here to stay for a good period of time. It's going to be quite pervasive. It's something that we need to live with as a sort of a social and public health, you know, consideration. But if there isn't a sort of a permanent or immediate final recovery, actually it starts to speak to kind of continually progressive cycles where we're learning, we're adapting, we're evolving all the time. That's, you know, that's what we have now. We have waves of lockdown. Things feel quite serial. I I think we need to play in where we started here around, like, what what are people's and communities' reserves at the moment? You know, something that feels serial is going to continue to ebb away at what are now quite diminished reserves. A a final question to you, Ian. As a council chief executive, what what do you perceive as being your role in helping to make sure that new normal is as good as it can be for the residents of Kingston? Well, I'd like to um, build on the, the, the learning points, actually. So we commissioned a formative evaluation into the Kingston response to the pandemic conducted by New Local, and we learned a great deal from that. And I think that as we emerge from the pandemic, there's so much that we can learn from great practice up and down the country is a shout for one of Caroline's staff actually Rebecca Sutcliffe that helped us with our peer review and that's a great way of learning from other places and uh, you know we've done some great stuff here that we wouldn't have normally done and another example that springs to mind is ethnographic research for our street sleeping community so we brought 180 uh, street uh, sleepers into uh, accommodation which was part of the national everybody in movement but over and above that the ethnographic research gave us a real insight into cyclical and chronic homelessness that moves from one generation to 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 the next and what carolyn said about structural inequalities is something we really need to get our heads around as well because i i recognize that too and as a result of covid for some of those communities the gap's going to get even wider in terms of inequalities so there are so many things that we need to get our heads around. At the centre of it, Nick, is about relationships and going back to uh, the importance of relationships and what I think Jen said earlier about trust, you know, trusting each other and, and working collaboratively to tackle some of these seemingly intractable social problems. So that's that's what I would say. I, we don't have enough time to do that question justice, I have to say. But uh, for me, learning, collaboration, 
trying out new things, testing new things, listening to our communities, working with our elected members and our partners is all part of what we need to do from a chief exec perspective, as far as I'm concerned. And, and Carolyn, what's what's your role as a chief executive in helping to helping to bring about this positive new future? So I so I think that in some ways, you know, we reflect on this a lot. There's nothing different in about the the kind of leadership task. There's just something about the intensity of it. I think so. A lot of the time during COVID, it's been about holding the space, hasn't it, and about giving people the confidence really that if they do these things, if they do take risks, if they play out of role, then it's safe for them to do so because they're also dealing with living with COVID themselves. So I think there's something about holding the space for people to do things differently, uh, to take those risks, to do that learning. And that, you know, when things go wrong, they're put right quickly, but we learn from that. We don't, you know, we don't punish. So I definitely think there's that. I think there's also about understanding the kind of where the organisations are absolutely in those kind of reserves uh, and capacity. You know, organisations go kind of through rhythms and cycles themselves, taking that forward. Clarity, really important. You know, lots of things we could do, lots of things we need to do, but what, where are we going to focus and how do we have that kind of that, that clarity? And just to cycle back to Jen's point, I think we need to think about distrust as well as a really active construct because understanding whether people we're talking to even on something like this podcast but equally you know with our communities if they trust us the things that we say or do are seen through a, heard through a certain lens if they actively distrust us that can that can be interpreted in a very very different way and if we don't understand that if we don't have that kind of connection with our communities then we risk uh, misinterpretation and I think that is one thing that COVID has shown us that that, that relationship that we've got with parts of our communities um needs significant work and attention and it's, it's really building that relationship how, how do you build that relationship do you identify individuals in the communities who who you can work with what's the best way of doing it so i, d- I don't think there's a single way uh, in the way that there's not a single community you know and communities are made up of individuals so i think we have to have a uh, huge diversity in terms of our approach and that you know just that relentless focus on, on kind of understanding and what we, you know, do, do you kind of come up with the answer yourself and then work with somebody in partnership to deliver it? Or do you work with people to identify what the issue actually is to start with and then work with people to come up with the solution? Or do you just create the space for people to do that themselves? You know, and there are different different approaches for kind of different issues. But I think for too long, we've kind of defined what we think the problem is, come up with the solution and then want to work in partnership with the delivery. But actually, if it's if it's not the right solution, it's not going to it's not going to work. And the point I made about kind of beta testing and rapid feedback loops so that we're really agile in our in our responsiveness, all of that, I think. And how do we try and get the system out of the way sometimes you know I mean we got we vaccinated I think it was 24 people who were homeless uh, in the early days of the vaccination program the the weight of the system pushing against us because that was seen as being out with the prioritization list even though they were clinically vulnerable and there was an entirely you know entirely clearly established clinical rationale for doing that that wasn't outside of policy the pressure that we felt and that people on the front line felt the role of the, the kind of chief executive council officer holding that space because we were doing the right thing we were absolutely doing the right thing is, is just really important i think particularly at points of significant change jen can i just ask you about carolyn's point about community now the the the, the, the pandemic has 
given us all kinds of new opportunities to engage with our communities in different ways. What do you think is the future of community engagement? I, I actually, in terms of the, you know, what is the future of community engagement? I think it's also deeply connected to this question of trust. And I'd like to kind of pull us back also to Ian's point around ethnographic research. So, you know, most people's impression of public sector and state is built on their experience, their personal experience with service and policy. And unless we're able to design services and policies with users in mind, we will probably fall short. But it will certainly, well, certainly has the potential to corrode that kind of question of trust with individuals and, and communities and households. And you know, I suppose in in as you know, future of our language for that will be user centred design, human centred design. We're starting to see that appear significantly more now through sort of central and local government kind of initiatives. But there's also a question I think around inclusive design. So it's designed from whose vantage point. So that is why we need representation of multiple parts of the community into the build and design of services and policies in order that we actually hit the mark. And can I ask you, Jen, are you optimistic about the future? Big question, I know. I, I am optimistic about the future. I was on a I was on a new local event this afternoon, and one of the thing one of the questions they asked was um, to the to the audience was what would you tell your grandchildren about the experience of the pandemic? And actually, when I reflected on that, it would be that I really sincerely hope that we have learned through the last year and a half mechanisms, tools and approaches that allow us to cope resiliently with the challenges and continued disruption that the next few years will undoubtedly present. Like we haven't addressed today climate crisis. That is something that feels absolutely huge and paramount. It's just that the timeframes for that are not an immediate tomorrow crisis, although they are. So I hope that all of the the, the center, you know, the really quite groundbreaking sentiment that we've talked about today around cyclical models, regenerative models, constant learning, being agile, distributed trust through communities and through organisations. That that's the thing that persists as a result of this experience. So yeah, on that basis, I'm I'm confident and optimistic about the future. And the final question for you, Carolyn, are you optimistic for Oldham in the new normal? I am. Yeah, I am. I think um, the, the place of towns and boroughs like Oldham, I think um, coming to the fore, maybe, you know, the whole debate about how city centric has our policy been. And I, I just think the response in Oldham has just been astonishing that, you know, I'm, I'm always really proud to be the chief exec in Oldham. But God almighty, never more so than the last kind of 15 or 16 months. And just that sheer kind of resilience, because we have just been, you know, wave after wave of this has hit us and time and time again people have just stepped up and stepped forward and it has just been absolutely incredible to see so knowing that you know there's always been something really about the heart in Oldham but you know seeing that just gives me yeah huge confidence for the future. Brilliant well that takes us to the end of this this episode of the local authority thank you to Jen Byrne, Ian Thomas and Carolyn Wilkins and to Future Gov for their support and the podcast will be back in September so we will see you then. Thank you for listening. LGC is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com.
FutureGov is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to wearefuturegov.com. We'll be back next month with another episode of The Local Authority. Thanks for listening.